Let's turn to God's word and have some time hearing from him today through the study of his holy word. Would you turn to 1 Timothy chapter 3? I have to admit, I have been looking forward to um, teaching through the pastoral epistles and, and particularly as we're coming into these, these, these chapters three and, and on, um, and, and particularly about the leadership of uh, the church. And, you know, it's been a few weeks since we've looked at this letter. We've had a, we were away and then we had a guest speaker last week. And so I just want to remind you of a couple things before we jump into this fabulous letter, which is written by Paul to a young man named Timothy, who was in Ephesus at the time. And years earlier, during Paul's third missionary journey, he, he labored for three years in Ephesus, really starting the church. And then from there, he continued on his journey through Macedonia and Achaia. And when he was leaving Asia Minor, he stopped back in the region at a place called Miletus. And there he called for the Ephesian elders. And those elders uh, met him. And when he met up with them, he made a very dire prediction that I want to remind you of. It's found in Acts chapter 20, 28 to 30. It says this, therefore take heed to yourselves and to all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. For I know this, that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Also from among yourselves, men will rise up speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after themselves. It's uh, the time of this letter being written now in, in 1 Timothy. It's about five or six years after that prediction recorded in Acts, and Ephesus had succumbed to false teachers. They had indeed risen from within. And some of them might have even been leaders in the church because Paul had to deal with a couple of them personally. You might remember he mentioned them back in chapter 1, verse 20, Hymenius and Alexander. They might have been elders that he had to, um, to reprimand and even kick out of the church. And so this letter seems to indicate that there are many problems going on within the church that needed to be dealt with. And so he urged Timothy to stay on in Ephesus to handle those uh, things. And so the letter really has a threefold purpose. One was to just instruct this young man, Timothy, how to, how to um, ex execute his duties within the church, but also to instruct him how to deal with the false teachers. But the overall our overarching reason for this letter, we've covered several times, it was to instruct the whole church on how they are to conduct themselves in the house of God, because it is his house. It is his uh, church. It's the church of the living God, and it's the pillar and ground of the truth. And when you think about the Old Testament, as you're reading through the Old Testament, it's all about the nation of Israel, isn't it? The entire thing. And God just plucked this nation. He just, he just chose this nation to be his instrument for, for proclaiming the truth that there is one God, and that he is the one God, that, that there's not a God made with human hands. There's not a God that we can come from the imagination of man. But there is one God, and he can be known. And Israel was to be set apart by the way that they functioned and acted and worshiped God so that they would display that truth, that there is one God. When you come to the New Testament, it's quite different. God has chosen a different instrument for proclaiming actually a different message. His instrument of choice is the church. The church 
He has saved people and placed them into this thing called this, this church or the house of God or the body of Christ, fellowship of believers. And we are to proclaim the saving message of Jesus Christ, the gospel. And so the house of God, it, it must operate uh, properly. It must operate truthfully without error so that the life-changing message of the risen Jesus Christ can go out into the world unhindered. But when you have a church that's riddled with uh, heresy, it's filled with unqualified leaders leading the church and unholy conduct within the church, then they fail to deliver the truth that the world desperately needs. The world is missing that message. And so Paul in chapter 2 began to address the proper conduct of men and women in the church, how we are to um, worship in the church in, in particular. And we looked at this a few weeks back, that the men in the church in particular, they're to look different than the men of the world, aren't they? They're to be holy men, characterized by holy conduct in their life, prayerful men. And so they can't have any, anything in their life that characterizes them really by the way the world would characterize a man. One of the things he picks out there is anger and quarreling. He says men cannot have that in themselves because they should be men of peace, because they have found peace in Christ. We looked at women as well, and that, that they're to set an example of what a godly woman must uh, look like. The women of this world find their, their identity and their outer appearance and the appraisal of others, and yet a godly woman in the church is, not, is to set a whole new set of values in their life. It's not about their outer adornment of clothing or their outer beauty, but rather the outer adornment of good works that spring forth from a pure heart. And so as we come to chapter 3 here, Paul's emphasis is on the leaders of the church. His focus is on the qualifications of leadership. And the New Testament gives us more instruction on the qualifications for leadership than on any other aspect of leadership. If you were to go and just make a study of it, it's more about the qualifications. And I would want to answer a question before we go into this. My question would be, well, why? Why does the Bible emphasize qualifications for leadership above any other aspect? I think there are three very important reasons that God demands these qualifications of church leaders. And I just want to hit these as a, a way of introduction, okay? I think first is that leaders have been given stewardship. It's about stewardship. It's God's household. It's his people, his children. And the leaders of the church have been given stewardship of his house. In Titus chapter 1, verse 7, which is another pastoral epistle, Paul writes this, For a bishop must be blameless as a steward of God. And we'll see in a moment that's virtually the same uh, verse as chapter 3, verse 2 that we'll be studying, looking at here. But um, it's the leader is the bishop there, and he is a steward of God. The church is God's most sacred possession. And you think about this. He has entrusted the oversight and the care and management of the church to elders. And we're going to see that in a moment, that it's indeed elders and that they're to be uh, men. But to, to think about this, elders have been entrusted with the stewardship of God's most treasured possession, his household. And since that is true, elders must be men that meet certain qualifications. There's a set of standards that God has set forth, 
and it must be those standards and not any other standards. Second, men are to be, the leaders of the church, to be examples. It's examples for others to follow. Your temptation when we go through these qualifications, and we actually won't get into them today, it'll start next week, your temptation will be to sit back and go, well, let me think about those men. Are they that way? Hold on. We're to be the examples for you to follow. You should be looking at those qualifications, not is that true of them, is that true of me? We're to be examples for you to follow. In 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 2 to 3, he says this, shepherd the flock of God which is among you, serving as overseers, not by compulsion, but willingly, not for dishonest gain, but eagerly, nor as being lords over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. The character and conduct that's modeled by an elder in the church is the character and conduct that God desires for all his children. That's the picture. And we read about that in Philippians 2 earlier on. Um, David read that in Philippians 2.15, that you become blameless and harmless children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. You're, you're all to shine. We're all to shine. We're all to stick out. We're to look different than the world. That's God's desire for his church. That's God's desire for the elders to model the conduct and character of his children. It has been said that about a church that whatever the leaders are, so the people will become. And you can see that in many churches today to a negative effect. And I think that's true because Jesus said everyone when he is fully trained will be like his teacher. Jesus taught so that his men would follow him and one day look like him and emulate him. And so elders, they're the shepherds of the people. They can have a, a tremendous impact on the behaviors and attitudes and uh, thinking of the people. And that's a huge responsibility. The third thing, uh, the third reason that we have the biblical qualifications that we're about to study are, are here are for the protection of the church. Men must be examined be, before they become leaders and they must be examined according to the qualifications in Scripture. And that's for the protection of the church. And when we look at the qualifications down the road here, you'll see that there are really three broad areas that they are covered there. It's their moral and spiritual um, character that's covered, but also their abilities and also their motivation. What's the motivation for being in leadership? Because men who do not measure up in these areas who, who come into the office of leadership in a church, office of an elder or pastor, with any major moral defects, with major character flaws, with um, limited abilities or, let's say, selfish motives for leadership, maybe there's ambition, selfish ambition, they wreak havoc in God's house. It is not a good thing. And so God has those qualifications for the protection of his house. I think many churches are so desperate for leadership that they just allow unbiblically qualified men into the roles based on their unbiblical qualifications. They're just, they've been in the church a long time. They're, they're, they're older. They're popular in the church. They're charismatic speakers. They're seminary graduates. That doesn't necessarily qualify you. They're people who are their buddies and their friends. None of those things cla classify as a biblical qualification for leadership. God's qualifications for the elders are, are the top. That's what you look at first, and we must meet those standards. And if they don't, they're not qualified in God's eyes to be responsible for the stewardship, for the protection, and 
uh, of the church and to be examples to the church. So I think that's why we see these qualifications here, those three, three things. Now, before Paul gets into the qualifications of church leadership, which really begin in verse 2, we have verse 1, and here he talks about the calling, the calling of a church leader. Because they are filling uh, such an important function for God and for his people, Paul introduces this whole section with the calling. I've had to title it the noble calling of the church leader, the noble calling, because it's not for everyone. And there's much that's in this verse one. My intention was to go through and maybe cover half of the qualifications this week, and I didn't get out of verse one. <laughs> there's so much here. And so let's look at it. I still will read verses one to seven so you get the whole context of what we're looking at, but we'll just cover verse one today. Follow along. It's 1 Timothy chapter three. This is a faithful saying. If a man desires the position of a bishop, he desires a good work. A bishop then must be blameless, the husband of one wife, temperate, sober-minded, of good behavior, hospitable, able to teach, not given to wine, not violent, not greedy for money, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not covetous, one who rules his own house well, having his children in submission with all reverence. For if a man does not know how to rule his own house, how will he take care of the church of God? Not a novice, lest being puffed up with pride, he fall into the same condemnation as the devil. Moreover, he must have a good testimony among those who are outside, lest he fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. Let's pray for God's blessing in our time. Lord, we thank you for your word to us today. We thank you for the very important section of scripture we come to about church leadership. I think the church today is in dire need of coming back to, to what your word says about those that are qualified to, to lead your house, your people. So I just, Lord, pray that your spirit would be with us, that we, we would just reveal these truths to our hearts, Lord, that we'd see the, the importance of the role of a, a church leader the, um, the magnitude uh, of responsibility that is there, but ultimately because of what the church is. It's a beacon for the gospel. It's the pillar and ground for the truth. So Lord, we just pray that you'd be with us. Your word would be blessed. Your people would be encouraged. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, let's just look at verse one. It says, this is a faithful saying. If a man desires the position of a bishop, he desires a good work. Now, this faithful saying should be a little familiar to you because it's the second time we've seen that phrase, faithful saying. It's only found in the pastoral epistles. So three of them are going to be found in this first letter. We'll see a fourth in his second letter, and we'll see a fifth in Titus. And he's already mentioned a faithful saying uh, back in verse 15, but it means a, a trustworthy statement. It was a statement of importance that was familiar to believers. It had circulated enough in this time, at this point, that it had been accepted as self-evident truth. So it was an axiom that had become a creed. You can say it that way. And the other faithful sayings, when you read through them, they all have to do with doctrinal uh, matters, um, such as the one in back in chapter 1, verse 15. He says, this is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. That's covering a doctrine. But the one we're looking at here in chapter 3, um, is the only one that has to do with something other than doctrine. It has to do with a call to ministry. And the fact that it is included in the faithful sayings, I think says something of the importance um, of the role of church leaders and their call to leadership. 
And so we're just going to look at five things from this verse that Paul highlights. Um, And the first point is this, that leadership in the church, it's limited or it's restricted. It's a restricted calling to be a leader in a church. Notice what he says. It's a faithful saying, if a man desires the position of a bishop. Now here, Paul is simply building on the case and the point that he just finished in chapter 2. Women are not to be leaders in the church. He has just finished saying that um, in verse 11, let a woman learn in silence with all submission, and I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man, but to be in silence. And we don't have time to go all through over that again. That was a couple weeks ago, and you can go back and listen to that again if you need to. But women are not to lead the church because it's not their role. It has nothing to do with their abilities or, or talents or anything like that. Remember, we're talking about the conduct that's in the household of God. Men and women serve different functions and have different roles in the church because it's, well, his house and he sets the rules. And women do have vitally important roles in the home and in society and, yes, in the church, but that does not include leadership and stewardship of God's house and of God's people, nor does it include teaching men. Now, we've covered this a lot over the last um, few weeks, but I just want to make um, a couple points to help answer the why, in case there's anyone watching for the first time or anyone new that maybe missed before. Why? Why? Why does God choose to do that? Well, ultimately, it has to do with God's created order. When you go back to the creation account, you look at Genesis chapter 2, God could have made Adam and Eve at the same time. He could have done it, but he didn't. You read Genesis chapter 2, and we, quite, we see something quite different. He made man first, and then he made the woman after the man. And then he made women actually from the man, from his own side, taking out one of his ribs. And then we're told that he made woman for the man to be his helper. And then when God created the woman, we're told that God brought her to the man. You can read that in chapter 2, uh, verse 22. And then when, he, when she was brought to the man, Adam named the woman. So she was named by the man. And you see all those things. And why was all that detail there? It was to establish headship. It was to, 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 to highlight God's created order there. And headship is seen in a passage we've looked at a few times. But I will look at it one more time. It's 1 Corinthians 11.3. He said, I want you to know the head of every man is Christ, the head of woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. When you look at this, I think it's important to note the subordination of a woman here is mentioned as part of a list of subordination and headship relationships. It's not her subordination alone. There's, there's subordination all through of Christ to God, of man to Christ, and they're inseparably separately linked. You, you cannot have one without the other. But I also want you to note that there's 40, four, four part parties that are mentioned there, God and Christ, man and woman, four parties, and yet only three are referred to as head. God, Christ, and man. Woman's not referred to as head, and yet that in no way makes her inferior because she subordinates herself to man. Any more than, than Christ is inferior to God because he subordinates himself to the Father. So first and foremost, the role of uh, teaching and exercising authority, the stewardship over the uh, church it belongs to men. God has given men that responsibility. That's why he started with what he did in chapter 2, and that's why he goes here. 
with these instructions, and particularly, as we'll see, he, he's to be a man of one woman. So, so all through that, it's, it's speaking to men. So it's a restricted calling for men. Secondly, it's a realized calling. Notice what he says here. It's a noble thing if a man desires the position of bishop, if he desires a good work. So it's twice the word desires is used there, and yet two different words are used in the Greek. And this is important. I want you to see this. The first word is orego, and it really speaks of the outward uh, calling. It means to stretch out oneself in order to reach something or to grasp something. That's the idea, to reach after it, to desire in this outward way. And it's used only two other places in the New Testament. One is in the pastoral epistles. That's the end of this letter in verse 6. And it's used negatively of those who love money, who strayed from the truth, because why? Their lives showed that they were stretching out and reaching for wealth, for riches, for money. And so they strayed from the faith because that was what was outwardly seen in their life. They didn't really pursue eternal things. They pursued temporal things. But it's used positively in an area we've covered not too long ago, in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 16. Remember, Hebrews 11 is the great hall of faith, all the heroes of faith. And we're told that, that in that list of faith, those who, whose life of faith was seen, it was seen as those that were reaching or stretching out for a better heavenly country. So that's the same way it's used there. Their outward life of faith demonstrated that inwardly they really were living for eternal things. And this is the idea here, that the calling of one to leadership, that he desires the position, that that is seen in his life, that that person lives for the eternal things. That person has made Christ Lord in their life, and it is seen in the things of their life, the priorities, their goals, the purposes, the things that they're pursuing. It can be clearly seen. Yeah, yeah, they're after eternal things. They are, they are hot after the heels of Christ. That's the kind of desire seen first. The second word used there is a whole different word. It's epithumeo, and that is the more desire inward. It can mean to lust or covet, and, and it, it, it can mean a negative way, but it's not here because it speaks of a position of, of leadership in a positive way. So it's the passionate sort of a compulsion, you would say, of, of inward feeling or desire. Now, I don't think this means that men should have an overwhelming uh, ambition for leadership. In fact, if, if I, I had that kind of feeling, I probably wouldn't, I probably wouldn't you know, approve that person. It's not for the ambitious person who, who maybe wants that position um, because they like power or they like the attention uh, or whatever it might be. Um, ambition is never a qualification. Then what does this mean? What is this desire inwardly? You know, I can tell you this. None of your elders, including myself, um, ever pursued positions of leadership. I never did that. Your, your elders never did that. Um, I, I, was, I was approached after people would notice the things in my life, what I was prioritizing. God changed my life. You've heard my story. I came back and said, that's it, I'm serving the Lord. <laughs> Whatever that means, I'm just going to... And we were just doing that. And then when we were approached, when I was approached about this, that realized within me, this is what God's doing. Okay, I see. I'm meant to serve Him. 
I'm meant to go this direction. And that's what I mean by it being a realized calling. If I had someone come up to me and say, oh, when, 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 can, I, you know, be, when can I be an elder? Where do I sign up? I'd be a little concerned. I'd go, uh, you got a little wait to go. I actually made a document, and I think Kofi was the poor first recipient of this because in the past I sort of just sent um, a couple of things and here, read 1 Timothy 3, here, you know, the qualification kind of thing, but we've actually since made an official document, and, um, and Kofi's not here today, so I'm not embarrassing him, but I, I actually asked to meet with him. I took a walk in the park, and he thought he was in trouble or something because I think he was shaking a bit. So I was trying to put him in, and he's like, hey, you're not in trouble, man. I just want to talk to you. And I gave him this letter, and we read it together. And it says, Calvary Chapel Church Council, qualifications, requirements, and expectations. You've been nominated to join the Calvary Chapel Cardiff Church Council. That's what we refer to ourselves as in terms of the, the group. As a charity trustee, because we, we do have to be the trustee side, but also as a church elder. Acceptance of this role requires prayerful self-evaluation and an understanding of the commitment you are making. And this appointment will be for a period of two years. And then I just have a series of bullet points. First and primarily, consider the qualifications and expectations of a church elder as listed below. You must be committed to the purpose and ministry of Calvary Chapel Cardiff as stated in the church constitution and statement of faith. Committed to personal discipleship in his life and ministry. A leader with a responsibility of ministry oversight and shepherding of the flock of God, 1 Peter 5, 2-3. You must be able to teach. This can be done one-to-one in a small group or at class level. You must be faithful in church attendance. You must be committed to financially supporting the church through giving, 1 Corinthians 9, 6-8. You must be a member who has been actively serving at Calvary Chapel, Cardiff. And if you are married, your wife must be in full agreement and supportive of the responsibilities involved in being an elder. And then we listed the things that go along with the church charity side in terms of a, a trustee because the commission does have us um, follow a few things there. And then I ended with just some expectations in, in terms of when the church council meets, those elder meetings, Saturday morning book study because we go through that on Saturday mornings and to faithfully answer church council emails and WhatsApp messages and, and things like that. So try to get the practical what time is expected of you. Now all those things are good. All those things are important, and maybe everybody's, every other church's letters are different. But there's a first bullet point that I purposely skipped. The very top one is this, a man who fulfills the requirements of leadership as described in 1 Timothy 3, 1-7, and Titus 1, 5-9. Now, if you were given a letter like this, it's a sobering thing, isn't it? I mean, I, I saw the look on his face, and he was just like, are you joking? Because I read this, and then I read those, and I go like, well, who? Who? <laughs> who, who, can, who can live up to these things, right? Who, you're talking about a perfect person. That's, God's not looking for a perfect person. But he does want his calling to be realized in the hearts of people. I had seen outwardly, I had seen that orego, the outward pursuit in Kofi's life. Outwardly shepherding people without anyone asking him to. I saw a shepherd's heart. So I saw the first desire, and I just went and wanted him to realize the inward. Does that make sense? And I think that's the, the role that I have, is to recognize that, but first it must be seen in their own lives. It's not something I can plant within them. 
But men who accept this calling, they realize the calling, they identify it. That's, that's how that works. And so that's why Paul says, if a man desires that, he's stretching out, he's stretching out for that, that, he's desiring a good thing. It's an actual calling that I've placed within his heart. I didn't know I had a calling to be a pastor because I'm dumb. <laughs> but God knew, and he just began to plant those things within my heart. So it is a realized calling as well. But there's a third thing. It's a responsible calling. It's a responsible calling. Paul here refers to the leadership position here as um, a position of bishop. Do you see that there? A position of bishop. And we're going to look at a few words here. This word bishop is episcope, and it's an overseership. It's, it's, it's the position or the function of the church leader, because that's what he says. It's the position. Uh, so overseership is the actual word. Um, but the person who would hold the overseership position is actually called a bishop as well in verse 2. Do you see the verse 2? A bishop then must be blameless. There the word is episkopos, and that is the overseer. So he's basically saying the overseership of the church is given to the overseer. That, does that make sense? So two different words, but meaning the same really thing. One's the function, one's the actual person. And that is where we derive our word bishop from. But today, honestly, the word bishop, well, as one commentator described it, uh, has been encumbered with much ecclesiastical trappings. I mean, I, I quite like the title Bishop Berthium. I think it has a certain ring to it. You know, I thought, yeah, maybe go with that. Just kidding. If I, if I took that, it would come with some baggage. I'd have some splaining to do. <laughs> the term episcopos or overseer or bishop developed a meaning over the years that um, is, is not consistent with the New Testament usage of it. The English meaning of a bishop today is sort of this presiding head over all these lower churches and even lower clergy. So it speaks of ecclesiastical hierarchy. And that doesn't exist in the Bible. That's not in the New Testament. Episcopos, bishop, also is not the most commonly used word in the New Testament for a leader of the church. And it's, by the way, it's not even pastor. Pastor is not even the most common name of a leader in the church. In fact, the term pastor, which is poimen, um, and is often or is oft always translated as shepherd, is actually never used in the Bible as a title for a church leader. It is used to describe a Christian leader. Remember Ephesians 4.11, and Paul lists, he's called some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors, some teachers. That's a description of leaders. So the pastor's there, a shepherd. That is description, but it's never used as a, as a title for a Christian leader. The only instance, and I love this, the only instance of someone being given the title of shepherd is actually found in 1 Peter 2, 25. Here it is. For you were like sheep going astray, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. The title of shepherd belongs to Jesus and Jesus alone. He is the shepherd, but also the overseer of your very souls. There is your ultimate leader, amen? He is the one that has the title. Now, I don't want you to get me wrong. Churches are not unbiblical. They're not incorrect for using the title pastor for their church leaders because the term pastor or the shepherd actually describes the chief role of the elder. Jesus charged Peter, feed my sheep. You remember that? And when he said that, he said, shepherd, 
shepherd my sheep as well. Peter then charged the the Asian leaders to pastor or shepherd the flock of God, which we looked at earlier. And then Paul reminded the Ephesian elders that we looked at at the beginning uh, that the Holy Spirit placed them as overseers to shepherd the church. So the word shepherd is used twice at least of leaders shepherding, pastoring the church. But bishop, not so much. Bishop is only actually used of church leaders here in chapter 3, verse 2, in the correlating verse in Titus, which is actually the same phrase of, of verse 2, a bishop must be blameless, in Titus 1, 7. But also in Philippians chapter 1, I'll just show it to you. Paul introduces this in the, in the very first piece of his letter. Paul and Timothy, bond servants of Jesus Christ, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who were in Philippi with the bishops and deacons. And that's important because that is the leadership. That's the leadership we see here. Verses 1 to 7, bishops. Verses 8 to 13, deacons. Those are the two um, sort of wings of the, of, the, of the leadership there. And Paul uses that in Philippians. But bishops, I want to show you this, is in, used interchangeably with the most prominent New Testament for a, a church leader, and that is elder. Elder is the most prominent. Elder is presbuteros. That is the word. And I'm going to take you to two places to show you that that word presbuteros is used interchangeably with episkopos, bishop, okay? One of them is in Titus. So I'm just going to have you turn to the right just a couple of pages to Titus chapter 1. It's just past 2 Timothy and then Titus chapter 1. It's similar to Timothy, except now he's writing to Titus. Titus is doing a similar thing. He's remained in Crete, and he's establishing um, elders. And in verse 5, he says that, For this reason I left you in Crete, that you should set in order the things that are lacking and appoint elders in every city as I command you. And then he talks about the, the qualifications. If a man is blameless, the husband of one wife, having faithful children, not accused of dissip dissipation or insubordination. And then verse 7, for a bishop must be blameless. So in verse 5, he calls him a elder. And in verse 7, he refers to him as bishop. But it's the same group of people. It's used interchangeably. Another place, I'll just put this one on the screen, is in Acts 20, where we looked at earlier when Paul stopped in Miletus and called for the elders. Uh, we see that in verse 17. He called for the elders of the church. And then when he's talking to them in verse 28, well, he uses a different word. Therefore, take heed to yourselves and all to the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. So he calls them elders. He calls for the elders. And when they come, he says, you're overseers. You have oversight over the church. In fact, he also says you're to do what? To shepherd. So actually three words are used of one group of man. You're elders, you're overseers, and you are to shepherd. So have, uh, elder is far and away the most common term used in the New Testament for a church leader, and that's why we use that term uh, today. Uh, but even, let's be honest, even the term elder can conjure up sort of negative ideas in people's heads because I think people sometimes think of a temporary committee, uh, a board of stuffy old men, and that they're separate away from the professionals. Um, that's not the New Testament meaning of elder. I want you to get that point. Biblically speaking, elders were a council of equals. And what they did is they shared equally the position, equally the authority, and equally the responsibility of the office over the church. However, why they shared those things equally 
authority and, and responsibility. They were not equally gifted. We're not equally gifted. We all have different sets of, of gifts. And so they didn't all have the same teaching ability. They didn't have all the same leading ability. And so naturally, those more gifted in certain areas would, would be seen higher above others, but they weren't unequal. And Peter, James, and John are a good example, aren't they? Jesus often pulled them away separately for specific things, and yet they were all seen as equal. The Romans called this primus inter pares, which means first among equals. They were equal, but they just stood out above others. And so we try to operate that way as well. Everyone here shares the authority and leadership um, uh, together, but um, I think ability, giftedness, uh, experience, even dedication, availability, and those things make some stand out above others. I'm obviously, I'm obviously paid to be here. It's my full-time job. I should be putting my gifts to full use here, but we have shared leadership. It's the shared leadership model because I believe it's the most biblically accurate. You don't go into scripture and see one-man leadership. You don't see unitary leadership. You don't see the pastor at the top and everyone else at the bottom. You certainly don't see uh, monarchical rule. That, that's unbiblical. As far as whether you refer to your leaders as elders or pastors, though, that's not really the issue, I think, um, because the term elders often gets entangled with temporary board committee connotations. I think churches often change the use to pastor. We, um, we, you might remember, we, we referred to everybody as trustees for the longest time, didn't we? And so we, we finally moved that to elders because I wanted the men to begin to take the spiritual side of things, the spiritual leadership, uh, more seriously, and they've been doing that. And so in my eyes, our leaders are, are pastor elders, shepherd elders. That's how I look at them, and you should too. The role of a shepherd is a very important role, and it speaks of responsibility, which is another um, aspect of the calling. It's a righteous calling. It's a righteous calling. Paul says that the office or position of an overseer is a good work. And good is just, it's callous, it just means honorable, it means praiseworthy, it means noble. That's where I got the title for today, the noble calling. Um, it's, it's first such an honor to shepherd God's people because it's his own household. It's his, which we're told he purchased with his own blood. And then entrusted the stewardship of this household that he purchased with his own blood to sinful fallen men. I think back to chapter 1, verse 12, when Paul was simply just blown away at the fact or the thought that Christ would choose to use him. Remember in verse 12, he said, I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has enabled me because he counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry. Hey, just, I... I I'm the chief of sinners, but God said he counted me faithful, Paul says. It's the Lord who counts us faithful. It's the Holy Spirit who makes people overseers. But I want you to notice that while the calling may be noble or righteous, it's defined as work. Do you see it there? It's a noble or good work, which is my fifth point. It's a rigorous calling. The the responsibility of an overseer is a huge responsibility. I just want to enlighten you a bit regarding the tremendous amount of constant work that goes into leading a church, and not really for my sake, but really for the 
sake of yourselves, that you understand that to one point, but also uh, for the sake of our, our elders who work so hard. I was really looking through this, and I think, you know, the, uh, the New Testament definition of an elder can be boiled down to four categories of responsibility, protecting, feeding, caring, and leading. And we're going to go through those um, one by one here. So responsibilities of the elders, and obviously within these categories, there's all kinds of duties to fulfill. But let's look at protecting. First, elders are to protect the, the, the church. If you think back to Paul's warning to those Ephesian elders, right? And he said, listen, you need to take heed to yourselves and to all the flock. Why? Because after my departure, when I go away, there are going to be uh, savage wolves. And they're going to come in among you, among you, from among you, and they're not going to spare the flock. So there'll be men who actually don't care for the flock. They want to harm the flock. And they'll actually be coming from within. And he says that men will rise up. But how will they harm the flock? Speaking perverse things, he says. Speaking perverse things. And so he says, therefore, you need to watch. The primary responsibility in terms of protection over the, the, the church for an elder is to protect the church from false teaching, from false doctrine. In Titus chapter 1, verse 9 he says a similar thing, that we're to be holding fast the faithful word as he has been taught, that he may be able to buy sound doctrine, both to exhort and convict those who contradict. We have to have a good handle on doctrine so that we can um, basically confront those who contradict, who have different views of Scripture that are uh, quite off to the point where they can lead people astray. I think so much of this is actually coming through the Internet it keeps me awake at night sometimes because I can't go into your homes and see what you're watching. I, I, I can't go there and say, ah, you need, to, you need to stop. You need to have discernment to say, am I listening to stuff here that could just get me in trouble, lead me astray? Am I going a different direction here? Because back in the day, you'd have to actually, you know, go pick up a book, go to another church, whatever. But man, you can just pipe it right into your home. And so it's so important that you understand the dangers that are out there and that if you do have questions, even I've, I've heard this, bring it to an elder. I just heard this today and it just doesn't quite sit right. Could you, you know, and, and we could talk through those things because we, we are entrusted with the responsibility to protect you from those things. And that, that is a huge responsibility. Not just that, that's not the only form of protection. Also, sheep sometimes tend to stray. Sometimes just to start to, to wander off. I think our church actually, not even just the elders, but you guys just as loving, careful, caring people, you notice yourself like, yeah, I haven't seen this person in a long time. Hey, where's this person going? That is so good because people can sort of just stray away. And part of our role is to protect those and to seek those that are lost or maybe on the fringe or kind of disappearing and, and to bring them back into the fold. That's another way to protect them because there is a spiritual covering that comes within the church. And when you start to remove yourself from that, you actually make yourself vulnerable to a lot of things. It's also important to protect the church from sin. And so we do have to discipline sin. We do have to admonish improper behavior, deal with um, uh, infighting amongst the flock, those kinds of things. And when you think about all those things, they all require spiritual alertness. You've got to be so attuned to, to what, what's the spiritual thing behind, uh, behind these things, but also courage. 
I can tell you, it doesn't make you popular when you're standing against the um, ideologies of the world, but also when you have to correct sinful behavior in a church. You can probably count on one hand the times that it's, re- it's been received positively. Most of the time, people think you're judging them unfairly, and they, they just leave. Um, I know I've told you many times about a, about a guy in the States that still thanks me um, for, for confronting him, pointing him out to something. Him, But uh, we were just back in the States, and um, a guy came into the room to see me, and his face looked so familiar. But it was just one of those things where, like, this guy, where is he from? Where is he, you know, because it was, it was ancient in my mind. And he came up, and he just gave me a hug. And then when we pulled apart, instantly the Lord gave it to me. His wife attended our church, and his wife came to me saying, my husband, um, he's unfaithful all the time, and he justifies it, and he says he's a Christian, and all these things. And so after meeting with her over the course of time, I said, you know what, you, 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 you have a, a biblical right to, to not be with your husband. You can separate. Um, and in fact, I advise you to at least separate to begin with, because he probably needs that you know, sobering reality of what he's doing. That prompted him to come in to meet me. Now, she says, oh, my husband's coming to meet you. And I'm thinking, I'm dead. Today I die. Today's the day I go to be with you, Lord. I entrust my spirit to you. (laughs) Help it not to be painful. And in walks this skinny skinny reed of a man. And I went, oh, cool, I can take him. (laughs) Just kidding. Um, But he comes and he sits with me. And he begins to tell me all these things, and he's justifying his sin. He's like, yeah, yeah, but you don't understand. I'm, you know, I'm a sexual man, and blah, 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 all these things. And I said, would you say you're a Christian? He said, yeah. I said, I have to tell you right now, I've seen zero fruit. In the five seconds I've known you, I've seen zero fruit of that. In fact, I would say you're standing on the precipice over the pit, and you're going down. And your wife has a right to leave you and to leave you to your sin, and there'll be nothing to save you. <laughs> so hit right here, make it quick, all right? <laughs> Um, but you know what happened? He broke down and he began to meet with me and I began to meet and disciple him through these things. So this man came up to me when we were back in the States. I didn't even recognize him. And he said, um, I've gotten out of the industry. He worked in the Hollywood industry. It's just been a plague. It's been the one thing that keeps drawing me back. I said, my wife and I are still together. He said, and I'm plugged into every Bible study I can. I'm in the men's, I'm in this and that. He's like, I thank you for that. (laughs) I'm not trying to uh, what I'm not trying to do is like, oh, it takes courage. And sometimes you think I might die doing this <laughs> or I might lose a friend or I might this, but, but we have to confront sin. And all of your, your elders deal with those kind of things uh, on a constant uh, basis. And it's so important because the church needs to be, be, to be protected from sin. That's protection. Second is feeding. Obviously, there's a great emphasis throughout the New Testament on the teaching of God's word. Jesus commanded is Peter, as I said earlier, to feed my sheep. We see the early church that they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. That meant the apostles were constantly teaching truth. And and feeding is such an important part. You must be fed the truth of God's word. And in 1 Timothy chapter 4, just look ahead to chapter 4 here. Look at verse 13. Paul writes this to Timothy, till I come, give attention to reading, to exhortation, to doctrine. To reading, to exhortation, to doctrine. Yeah, there's a lot of things you need to be faithful to do, Timothy, but here's what I want you to do until I come. Be faithful to preach, to teach. Be faithful to that. 
In fact, one of the abilities and roles of the elder is that they teach. If you skip ahead to chapter 5, verse 17, he says, Let the elders who rule well be counted worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in word and doctrine. He says, especially those who work hard at preaching and, and teaching. Why? Why are they worthy of double honor? Why is teaching so important? Here's why. Because much of the work of an elder is accomplished through teaching scripture. There are so many problems that are overcome because God's word is faithfully going out and the Holy Spirit is using that in the hearts of people. Remember back when we were in Hebrews and we took two weeks to talk about sex and money, right? Major subjects, right? I was told of several people who, based on just the teaching there of that just going out, of it changing things in their lives. I never met with them. I never counseled them. I never discipled them through that. That's God's word penetrating hearts. Much work is accomplished through teaching, feeding the sheep. In fact, in Ezekiel 34, it's a scary picture because God is condemning the pastors. He's condemning the shepherds of Israel for their lack of care. And I want you to look at what his chief complaint is against the shepherds there. In Ezekiel 34, verse 8, as I live, says the Lord God, surely because my flock became a prey and my flock became food for every beast of the field, because there was no shepherd, nor did my shepherds search for my flock, but the shepherds fed themselves and did not feed my flock. They became prey. There was no oversight. There was no care. Why ultimately? Because they weren't fed. Elders primarily protect and guide and lead and nourish and comfort and educate and heal the flock by the teaching and preaching of God's word. The Holy Spirit does the work. The English reformer John Wycliffe said, the highest service that men may attain to on earth is to preach the word of God. And that's true because the word of God is living and powerful and it's sharper than any two-edged sword and it pierces to the vision of soul and spirit and joints of marrow and it's a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Preaching and teaching of his word is a way to properly care for sheep, which leads to the next responsibility of elder, and it's caring. There are many practical needs of, a, of, of people in the church, isn't there? We, we have to properly care for people. It's visiting people when they're sick. It's, it's comforting them when they're bereaved. It's strengthening people when they're weak. It's providing counsel for those who need it. And all those things must fall under the banner of, of love. There should be genuine love for God's people, and even the difficult ones. <laughs> a desire for well, their well-being and their spiritual maturity. People are important. So yes, while it's important to feed and allow the Holy Spirit to do uh, the work, I remember a, a pastor telling me, listen, you can, you can give the best sermon you've ever given in your life, but people will forget it, but they'll remember if you loved them. Because love speaks powerfully, doesn't it? There was an old saying, man before business, because man is your business. The church is about people and caring for people. And so it's through loving care and faithful feeding and watchful protecting that the elders show themselves as examples to the flock. We, we all have to be like that. And it's through these things which, which the elders primarily lead the flock, which is the fourth one, leading. Elders are stewards of God's household. And that means they have to supervise and manage a church as an overseer, and that requires some management skill. So a church body needs leadership and management and governance and, and guidance 
and counsel. It needs vision. Elders have many, many tasks that fall under the banner of leading. When you think about just those things, they must be able to to give direction. They must be able to clarify uh, fundamental beliefs, so doctrinal truths. They must be able to set goals and make decisions, correct failures, affect change and motivate people. They must be able to evaluate and plan and govern. Uh, That means they got to be problem solvers, managers of people, planners, thinkers. All this requires hard work. Paul says it's work. It's righteous, it's noble, but it's work, and it's rigorous work. And it requires a tremendous amount of devotion. And I want to close by taking you to a passage in 1 Thessalonians. I'll put it on the screen where Paul is appealing to the congregation here to acknowledge their leaders. And in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 12 to 13, he says this, And we urge you, brethren, to recognize those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord, and admonish you, and to esteem them very highly in love for their work's sake. Be at peace among yourselves. There is a natural tendency, I think, to take leaders for granted. I think there's a natural tendency to overlook what they are doing for us and um, maybe focus on what they're not doing for us because oftentimes we're selfish and we're just thinking about what we need to uh, complain rather than be be thankful, to accentuate the bad and disregard the good. It reminds me of the attitude the children of Israel had against Moses. And we all read that and go, how, man, how could these people be like that? But so often people in the church are just like that. Where's our food? Where's our meat? Where's our water? Where's our promised land? Oh, here's the food. Oh, we hate this disgusting stuff. Oh, here's the promised land. We don't want to go in there. There's giants. (laughs) Constantly negative, constantly complaining, constantly focused on themselves. That can be a terrible drain on, on leaders. And listen, no group of elders is perfect as well. We all have flaws. We all have weaknesses. We won't do everything right. But I want to show you something. You know, the emphasis is usually upon the love that shepherds are to have for people. And that is absolutely important. It's essential. It's necessary. But do you see what Paul does here? Esteem them very highly in love for their work's sake. He actually turns the tables and he says, no, you need to love your elders. Elders don't necessarily need to be esteemed for their special abilities. He's not saying for their age or for their gifts or for their winning personalities or anything else. He says you need to esteem them, why? For their work. What people need to understand is that leading a church is very rigorous work. They're laboring for souls. Not everyone can bear the weight of that responsibility. It's difficult Leon Morris said this, it's a matter of fact that we are often slow to realize to this day that effective leadership in the church of Christ demands effective following. If we are continually critical of them that are set over us, small wonder if they are unable to perform the miracles that we demand of them. If we bear in mind their work's sake, we may be more inclined to esteem them very highly in love. Your elders are doing a hard work. They're doing a good work. It's um, hard working to work, uh, hard, hard work handling people's problems and, and fielding complaints and mediating conflicts, confronting sins, admonishing improper behavior, encouraging people toward maturity 
in Christ, all that's hard work. Sometimes I do long for clocking out. I think, oh, there's a job that you just go punch out. And, and I, that's not the truth of, of leadership of the church. And so Paul says you need to esteem them for their, their work. There's a book I've been taking your, your men through. It's called Biblical Eldership, and, and we've been going through it for a, a while now. But I was so blessed to be going back through it this week because there is a passage about the um, qualifications for biblical eldership. And in there, he said this, better have uh, no elders than the wrong ones. And I had made a note. I read this years ago. I made a note at the bottom of that. I wrote at the bottom of the page, this may take time, but God will develop them. And they're here now. <laughs> it's amazing. And I just was looking at that going, oh, praise God. Look what you have, have done. We have them. They're here. And we're called to love them for their work because they've answered a noble calling. A noble calling. They're serving the King of kings and Lord of lords by loving you. So this, honestly, is just a reminder of, of how good God has been to our church. Isn't he been good? I think he has been. And I'm thankful for the men in the church. Let me pray. God, thank you so much for your word to us today. We thank you that, Lord, it is a noble calling, and it is such a huge responsibility that you've placed on those to lead the church, but every church must have that. We, we, we aren't alone in that. Every church is, is called to have qualified leaders giving oversight and protection and care, feeding, uh, loving the members of the church, Lord, and I thank you for the elders that you've brought in my life and those that are here in the church today. I thank you for, Lord, all that they, they do to serve you in his kingdom, your kingdom. And Lord, I know that we aren't perfect. And Lord, um, we're not looking for praise. That's not what this is about, Lord. But it's to, to set the, the proper view of things. I don't think it's an accident that this fell on a Thanksgiving focus week where we could be thankful people and not focus on the negative, but thankful for what you've done. Because we can go to so many churches today and they have no men leading the church. They, they, they have unqualified people leading the church. And yet, you, Lord, you have, you have done something different here because we just chose to be faithful to your word. And we thank you for that. We love you. We praise you. We want to give you all the thanks and glory today. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.